Good morning, and good morning to those watching online. Happy Valentine's Day. Um, we didn't arrange this, by the way, uh, to speak on this topic of sexuality. On it just happened to fall that, just happened to fall that way. And um, also want to say that uh, try to keep this content this morning pretty general. Um, and if you have kids, it's uh, uh, again, it's be fairly similar to the way we've addressed this topic before publicly. So that's that's the the, the tack that we have in mind. So um, my kids are all older, so I am no longer a good judge of these things. I can't really tell, but we've done our best to try to make this information accessible to everybody. Well, I want to begin this morning by uh, talking about a book review by a professor named Wesley Hill, and he reviewed a book for Christianity Today on sexual freedom. The book is called Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. It's by a progressive Lutheran pastor from Denver. She founded a church called uh, 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 Denver's House for All Sinners and Saints. It's widely known as being a haven for uh, religious misfits and ex-evangelicals. And Hill writes that her book sets out to make Christians free from the angst and the humiliation uh, that churches have often foisted upon them. She rejects wholesale the idea of sexual purity. Bowles Weber sums up her message like this. She says, I'm here to tell you that unless your sexual are for minors or animals, are your sexual choices are hurting you or those who love you, those desires are not something you need to, quote, struggle with. They are something to listen to, make decisions about, explore, perhaps have caution about, but struggle with, fight against, make enemies of? No. Now, Hill concludes his book review by writing that the message of shameless, in short, is that the way to flourishing any standard that isn't giving you life. And the question he raises is, is what leads to human flourishing? This is the crux of the book of Proverbs. There are two pathways to wisdom. There is the way of God, the city of God, and there is the way of the culture, the city of man, which leads to the good. And Bowles-Weber's message, even though staged in a church setting, certainly mirrors the prevailing cultural attitude. The mantra cry of our culture, you might even go so far as to say the existential demand of our culture is sexual freedom with whomever we want and whenever we want. Even love is no longer required. The only ethical threshold to meet is as long as no one gets hurt. Well, the question is, is does our sexuality actually matter to God? Is there a wisdom in this arena? You might think you know what the Bible says about sexuality, but what it actually says may surprise you. And the question again for us is, which song will we trust? Will we trust in God's song, or will we trust in the world's song? Because the grounded life does include sexual wisdom. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this, into this topic. Pray with me, if you would. 
Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you this morning. And Father, I have no idea what my friends here are thinking, wondering about. There's so much emotion, so much, Father, you know, shame and guilt and complexity that is attached to our sexuality as men and as women. And I pray this morning, Father, for breakthroughs, real breakthroughs, for single adults, for, for married couples. I pray that this morning might be a catalyst for healing where there needs to be healing, for restoration where there needs to be restoration, for repentance where there needs to be repentance, for comfort where there's hurt, for challenge where there's apathy. Holy Spirit, come this morning. Come into this room. Come into the place where men and women and younger men and women are watching at home. Come into these places with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the power of the kingdom, with the power of new life. Father, we pray these things for your glory. We exist for your glory. We pray them for our good as well because you desire our good. Amen. 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 Okay, well, before jumping back into this topic, let's first take a little stock of where we have been. Remember, Proverbs 1 through 9 sets up the rest of the book. The first nine chapters help us to see the incredible prize of wisdom and call us to pursue it. We're not born with wisdom. Amazon can do a lot of things, but it cannot deliver a neatly uh, put-together package called, called wisdom. It must be cultivated. It, um, uh, it comes with experience. It comes with reflection. Wisdom is a revelation. It is a gift of God. And once our hearts are cultivated for wisdom, then the rest of the book, Proverbs 10 through 31, just explodes with meaning and with insight. But our hearts must first be cultivated, must be shaped to receive wisdom. Now, there's also several warnings that are enfolded into the first nine chapters, warnings that if not heeded, will sink the dreams of these royal princes training for nobility. They are the audience to whom is receiving Proverbs, including the king's son. One of these warnings is peer pressure, and the second is sexual sin. And from early on, the princes are warned of the seductive and the often successful adulteress who has left who has left and abandoned the promise she made before God. Now, last week, Pastor Nick stopped at verse 12 in chapter 3. And throughout the rest of the chapter 3 and into chapter 4, the author continues to repeat the benefits of wisdom. Now, there are some other commands as well that are in there, such as the just treatment of your neighbor, such as God's attitude towards the violent, and we'll find those things strewn throughout chapters 3 and chapter 4. And then finally in chapter 4 at the end, these royal princes being mentored are exhorted to guard their hearts, verse 23, to let their eyes look straight ahead, 
verse 25. To give careful thought to their steps. In other words, don't be aimless, but be intentional. Verse 26. And then that leads us right into chapter 5, which along with chapter 7 is a warning to avoid sexual sin. So what we're going to do is this week we'll cover chapter 5. And then for continuity next week, we'll cover chapter 7. So why don't you stand, and I'm going to read the first five. For your outline, and you can put this slide on, Alex, because here's what we'll do this morning. We'll have the promise, verses 1 through 10, the regret, verses 11 through 14, and the surprise, verses 15 through 20. But let's read the first 10 verses to get us started this morning. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life, but her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to the one who is cruel. Let strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. This is God's word. And you can say with me, thanks be to God. Go ahead and take a seat. What do we have here? The wise father says to his son, you are walking into a dangerous world. You are going to be tempted. The world is filled with sexually foolish and sexually broken people. And notice that it is with words, not with actions, the seductress begins. The lip of the adulterous woman drips honey. She knows that men, in particular, are vulnerable to flattery, to affirmation, to attention. And what she says has a powerful appeal. But notice in verse 6, she is aimless. She is not aware she is playing a dangerous game. The honey will turn bitter. A sharp sword will enter both their hearts. Affairs end badly. They always end badly. It says there that her steps lead to the grave. Now, death could be physical in some cases. NFL fans remember the story of Steve McNair in Nashville, shot to death by the girl, with the woman with whom he was having an affair. But the death in adultery can also be qualitative. Loss of reputation, loss of job, loss of financial security, lawsuits, a physical toll from stress. Many of you have observed firsthand the toll that adultery takes on spouses, children, family members, friends, and churches, wrenching heartache, rage, and tears. Some of you, some of you have personally bore that horrible cross. If you have seen the musical Hamilton, who has not wept with the heartbroken Eliza in her song called Burn? 
in which she recounts the first hearing of Alexander's affair. On one occasion many years ago, I had to talk down an adult son who was ready to physically attack his father. He could take no more. The emotional toll on his mother from an adulterous relationship had been unbearable to watch. Now, before going, let me just take a pause for a moment to say something that's important. If you are a woman, you might be thinking, why is the author or the Bible placing all the blame on the woman? And I would not blame you if that seems unfair to you. Men are just as bad as women. And we could argue that men are more predatory than women. But it is not the Bible's intent here to be misogynist. In the Bible, we have a book. In this Bible, we have a book where the Holy Spirit speaks to people and through people into real-life situations. It's not mechanical. And so in this case, it is a father to his son, a warning to his son. And in the end, the Bible will affirm that the blame does not boomerang back to the woman, but actually rests on the shoulders of the offending man. Now, the problem here specifically is adultery. Adultery is what we're referring to. But in this first section, the problem, I'd like to broaden it out because the Bible speaks of sexual sins in general. There are many sexual sins. And the pervasive problem, as the Bible defines it, is sexual sins of all kinds because of the human heart's proclivity to place self-gratification above the needs of others. Ray Ortland hit the nail on the head when he said this, that all of us are sexual sinners at some level. And we all know the slavery of it, the inescapable regret and shame of it. Sin touches everything we are. None of us is perfect. None of us is strong. We all need merciful liberation from our past. Amen? Amen. From the pastors down, we all need liberation. Merciful from our past. Now, Ortland goes on to say that a friend who has professional expertise in this area tells me that estimates are that 85% of men have premarital sex. After marrying, about 25% of men and 15% of women commit adultery at some point. And about half of men and a third of women are looking at porn at least once a month. Friends, we've been talking about a cultural tsunami in this past 12 months. There's been a tsunami happening to our culture for a long time. Sexual devastation. And we need a massive cleansing today that only God can give. Now, Ortland wrote that in 2012, and I can't imagine it's any better. Likely, it's worse. Now, I want to take this even a step further. Um, Vadi Bakum, who, by the way, I just heard is suffering quite profoundly physically. Many of you know Vadi Bakum. He's a pastor from Texas. And he argues that we live in a pornographic and overly sexualized culture. Men and women are objectified. 
by that I mean dehumanized, regarded only for self-pleasure. It is so mainstream now that we are completely oblivious. And he captures this in a short video. It's concise. It's an articulate summary of the problem. Let's, let's watch this and I'll come back up. is that we talk about pornography only in terms of young men. Um, there are young women who struggle with pornography, not in the same way, not in the same numbers, but, but it's real. Um, we live in a pornographic culture. And that's one of the things that makes it very difficult to deal with pornography. We've been so inundated with pornography that we're desensitized to pornography. And, and that line um, at which we will say that's pornographic um, has been drawn so far out into the realm of the inappropriate that we have people who dress pornographically um, and they're not bothered by it and we're not bothered by it anymore. So one thing that I say to people in this area is that we need to recognize that we are living in a pornographic culture. And the reason I say that is because part of dealing with the roots of pornography are acknowledging the fact that we have been desensitized to it and acknowledging the fact that my problem with pornography, let's say that there's a pornography scale of, of, of one to 10 and 10 is, you know, full on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in, you know, the, the, the worst um, examples and extremes of pornography. Um, well, I, I think culturally, we probably live every day around a three or four, just in commercials and just in, you know, uh, and just, just, in the, just in things that we become desensitized to. And so if I'm living at a three or four and a five or a six really doesn't bother me anymore, then when I get to a nine, uh, my goal in dealing with somebody who's at a nine is not to say, uh, come back to a five or six. My goal with them is to say, I want you to recognize not just that this is an issue, but that even those things that are down here in the areas that we're not even bothered by are issues. Not so that the person becomes, you know, just afraid of looking around, but so that the person becomes aware of their need for Christ to cleanse their minds, not just of the website where I'm watching pornographic sex, but also of my lack of sensitivity to those everyday examples of pornography that are around me. Because to the degree that I go on accepting them and am no longer bothered by them, to that degree, I'm setting myself up so that the leap from that five to that nine is a very short leap. And it's not just so that I won't leap over into the worst of pornography, but it's so that I can understand the dignity inherent in human beings made in the image of God and how my embrace of a pornographic understanding of my fellow man, my fellow woman, is the embrace of the destruction of their dignity. So that if I see a young woman who is presenting herself in a pornographic way, 
and that's not bothering me. I've just said some woman as made in the image of Christ. And until that becomes an issue for me, not in the sense of walking around, you know, sort of with my eyes, you know, blocked off, but in the sense of appropriating God's grace and asking him to, uh, to appropriate that grace in me, even at that level. Um, and and, and t until I'm there, I'm not really dealing with this issue of pornography. And ultimately, when I, I come down to it, not only is it that, that issue of the, the inherent dignity and value of human beings made in the image of God, um, the, the not defrauding my brother and my sister, but also this idolatry of believing that it's okay to use another human being in order to gratify myself in any way, sexual or otherwise. So what I wanna do, and I know it's a, that's a long way around, but what I wanna do when dealing with this issue of pornography is I, I wanna uproot and uncover all of that um, so that we can not just have this sort of legalistic response to, I'm not gonna do that and I'm gonna put things in place so that I don't do that anymore, but so that we have a response that goes all the way back to um, you know, the, the cleansing of our minds to be able to appreciate one another as being made in the image of God and not just accepting this ordinary uh, pornographic predisposition that has become so normal. There is so much there. My goodness. He is so articulate on this issue. You would benefit from anything he, is, he has said or written on this topic. But that says so much about the problem confronting us as well as the solution. The writer of Proverbs seeks to show us the beginning and the end. And the beginning from the end. The problem confronting us as Bauckham mentioned, is this sexual freedom to have sex with whom and whatever and whenever we want. But the writer of Proverbs shows us the consequences of that freedom. So take a look at your Bible and look at this next section. The first section, 1 through 10, is the problem. Now this second section is called the regret, and it begins at verse 11. And notice the way he begins verse 11. He says, at the end of your life. The wisdom of the Bible is to see things in 360. The wisdom of the Bible is to see the end of things, where your actions are leading. And he begins verse 11 by saying, at the end of your life you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors, and I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. This man is now drowning in regret. Consequences, my friends, have a long shelf life. How did I get there? He doesn't ask that. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't ask, how did I get there? He knows how he got there. He made a decision a long time ago to reject the wisdom he was taught. And in a burst of insight and self-awareness, he does not put the blame on the seductress. He puts the blame on himself. I did not listen. 
Derek kind, uh, Kinder said of this section, he says, the primary thought of these verses is not that loose living invites disease, though verse 11 may indicate that, but that it dissipates irrevocably the powers of a man, the powers a man has been given to invest. He will wake up to find that he has been exploited by his choice, chosen circle, with whom he had no real ties, condemned by his conscience, and on the brink of public ruin. So, that's the regret, the middle section. We've had the problem, we've had the regret. Now let's go to the final section this morning called the surprise, verses 15 through 20. And in the surprise, Solomon describes the beauty of sexual wisdom to his son and the other royal princes. He seeks to give them a vision of what could be, a vision of what ought to be. Indeed, he even prays it for them. Parents, by the way, before we read this passage, there is so much wisdom here for you. So much wisdom, parents. And I love how Vadi describes this. Vadi says, as parents, it is not healthy for your kids to hear in their growing up years in regards to sexuality, no, 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 bad, bad, bad. And then on the doorsteps of their wedding night, tell your son or daughter, um, hey, uh, I've got a secret to tell you. Like, can you picture that? Can you imagine how that distorts the beauty? It turns it into something shameful rather than something sacred and something beautiful. Now look at what Solomon writes to his son. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Here's the prayer. May your fountain be blessed, and may your Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Friends, I'm not lying to you. There's a full sermon here, 45 minutes in every verse. <laughs> I can't do that things that relate our sexuality to the grounded life. The water, what does it picture? Well, indeed, it's obvious. It pictures sexual thirst and desire. There is nothing innately sinful about that. It is a part of the God-given, God-embodied hardwiring. And the hardwiring is embodied for women as well, though it is unique to her feminine identity. And it is complementary to the man's. Notice the call for exclusive love. Verse 17, never to be shared with strangers. We see a freedom here in these verses. But the freedom has a form. If we liken that desire to a river, there are banks on either side of the river that provide direction and focus to that water. And those banks exist, and here's the most important thing I'm going to say this morning. Those banks exist because God knows what creates human flourishing. 
Those banks exist for that reason. In Christian sexual ethics, those banks are the marriage covenant, the sacred promise of a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. I mean, friends, this is so relevant. And Nick mentioned this last week, and it bears mentioning again. You know, the Christian church has a long way to go to extend love to the sexually broken, and especially the LGBTQ community. Our record is not good. At the same time, we must hold grace and truth together with the tension that it produces. In that pursuit, we cannot lose the understanding of the distinction between male and female. God created them both in his images. And our differences as men and women are defined by our sexual identity. And that difference goes all the way back to the very nature of God's person. God is one, yet three. God is one, yet he is diverse. God has existed for eternity in a loving community. Father, Son, and Spirit. God bringing oneness out of diversity is one of the great storylines of the Bible in marriage, in church, and in humanity. Our culture today is seeking to erase the differences between men and women. And in doing so, I believe what will be borne out it is, is, is that it is not men who will suffer, but it will be women and children. And it will not lead to human flourishing. You see, this section, like every other section in the Bible that highlights romantic, erotic, erotic I can say that word, erotic love, reveals it to be between a man and a woman. There is not a single example in the Bible highlighting sexual love between same-sex partners. Friendship, yes, but not a sexual relationship. So it is not from hate, it's not from tradition, it's not from a desire to demean that we believe the covenant of marriage is between a man and a woman. We are trying to be true to our reading and understanding of what God's word says. Now, take a little parenthesis from that or to come back from that cultural statement. I've been commenting on never to be shared with strangers. Let me go back to that and share a few more things about this verse. Sexual love is like the renewing of wedding vows. In that moment of tender vulnerability, the thinking should not only be about physical pleasure, but the emotional bond of the statement of, I am yours, all yours, and you are mine, all mine. There are no others. <laughs> this love is exclusive. And when you make love, you renew that covenant. This is a vital part friends of the marriage relationship. The writer says, be intoxicated with it, referring to both quality and quantity. This is a vital part of the marriage relationship, and I want to speak for a moment now to married couples. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is blunt. 
And he says, do not withhold your love from one another. You can look at this. You can look it up. There's, the section is powerful. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. And married couples, I just want to say this as a, with a pastor's heart and with, with all the gentleness I can muster. If you are not regularly engaged in this part of your relationship, if you do not have a growing physical and emotional bond, something is not right. Now, there could be many possible reasons. It might be, uh, uh, it might be physical problem. It could be a dysfunction of some sort. It could be a broken trust. There are many possible reasons. And you might feel tremendous shame. You might be weighed down with guilt, but for yourself and for one another, get the help that you need. Don't wait. Bring it to the light. Begin with someone, a friend, a counselor, a life group leader, a pastor. There is no need to suffer in silence. So important. Now look down at verse 18. He says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Friends, listen. Embracing the freedom that God gives keeps love fresh no matter how old you are. Love does not have to automatically default to something any less. The next verse, a loving doe, a graceful deer, verse 18. Some of you hunt deer. You might be a little disconnected here. For others, deer are the pests that ruin your garden. But Bruce Waltke says this is about enjoying your wife visually, honoring her beauty. In the metaphor of a deer, the author has in mind, quote, their bright black eyes, their graceful limbs, and their irresistibly silky hair. In the right form, consistent with God's design, the sexual relationship is beautiful and glorious. The father doesn't just say, no, no, no. He says, yes, 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 to what is glorious and what is good. Ray Ortland talked about this relationship between form and freedom, and he wrote this. This is really insightful. Ray Ortland says this. Here's a key concept we must understand, and it applies to all life. The gospel calls us into both form and freedom, both structure and and liberation. Conservative people love form and restraint and control, especially in sex. Progressive people love freedom and openness and choices, especially in sex. Both see part of the truth, but the gospel tells us the whole truth. And the truth is, Ortland goes on, and the truth is God gave us our sexuality both to focus our romantic joy and to unleash our romantic joy. When this very human joy is both focused and unleashed, having both form and freedom, it becomes wonderfully intensified. We thrive both within form and freedom. And again, friends, this is true for every area of life. Sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. 
So, what have we said this morning? I began with trying to articulate what the culture says about sexual freedom. And on the other side of it, some in the conservative world and realm, whether it's the culture or the church, have only given the message of no, 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 bad, bad, bad. And what we have tried to show is a third way this morning, the gospel way, that brings together freedom but within a form, the form defined by God's design, because he knows the beginning from the end. He has a 360 look, and he knows what produces human flourishing. So really the bottom line question is, will we trust our wisdom? Will we give the world authority in this area, or will we give it to God? Who really do we trust? Who do we really believe? That's what it comes down to. We've talked about the problem. We've talked about the regret. And we've talked about the surprise. Now, let me make some applications having, having taught God's word and understanding God's word. Let's look at some, a few applications. We've already given you some. There have already been applications throughout this morning, but I want to mention a few more. Here's a really important one. We told couples who are struggling in this area, do not suffer, in, please do not suffer in silence, but get help. And I'd say the same thing. If you're struggling with same-sex attractions, turn to a person that you trust. Don't go underground on this. And I think I can guarantee you this and make you this pledge. This is certainly our aspiration, that if you speak to a leader of this church, about your same-sex attractions, you will not be treated with disdain. You will not be condemned. You'll be treated with grace and understanding. So that's one important application. Now, I said some things to couples. Now I want to say something important to single adults. Single adults this morning, please don't hear me saying that if you wait for marriage, for sex, everything is going to turn out perfect for you. Unfortunately, that's been a little bit of the implication of evangelical teaching in the past, and it's led to hurt and to disillusionment. Like the Proverbs themselves, Nick again mentioned this last week, like the Proverbs themselves, following God's wisdom and principles generally leads to a desirable outcome, be it finances or vocation or family or sex. But it is not always the case. You might do everything right and still face bitter disappointment. Remember that besides the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature is the book of Job. And there are movements of God, there are counsels of God that we don't understand, and he doesn't explain in this life. And it's a reminder that we follow wisdom first because he is our reward. Not because it guarantees me a great sex life in the future. Friends, if you're struggling with sexual sin, single or married, let me mention one resource to you, a great book by Paul Tripp. Many of you know and trust his name already on family and parenting concerns. Paul Tripp wrote a book called Sex in a Broken World, 
how Christ redeems what sin distorts. It's all in your Bible app. You can check it out there and encourage you to, to read that book if you're struggling with this area. Again, his comments were much like Vadi's. They deal with the heart. Not just to behave, they deal with the behaviors, but they also deal with the heart. Lastly, lastly, looking at the big picture of all of this, going back to the, the adulteress in the story, the seductress, the, the, the seductress, It'll become clear later in Proverbs that she's not just uh, in real time of this concrete immoral, immoral woman, but she represents something. She represents a direct rival. We'll see this in chapter 9, the woman folly. She represents a direct rival to God in capturing the heart of his son. If the son embraces her, it reveals that he has not only rejected his father, but also his God. Adultery, Daniel Aiken points out, distorts our most intimate human relationship, right? And it is used as a metaphor to speak of the distortion of our relationship with God. Which wisdom will you choose? The wisdom of the world, which promises freedom but only enslaves, or God's wisdom that brings together form and freedom from the one who knows the beginning from the end. And before we close up this morning, before we close up, I really can't go. We really must not go without me giving to you the six most important words of the Bible. Six most profound words of the Bible. It's found in Psalm 130, verse 4. The psalmist wrote to his father and prayed to his father, but with you there is forgiveness. There couldn't be six more hopeful words in the entire Bible. But with you, with you, Father, there is forgiveness. Think about those words today, will you? Think about them tomorrow morning. Let them roll over and over again in your mind. And remember that this includes your sexual sin. Includes my sexual sin. Verse 9, it said, in our text, said that sin and sexual sin specifically is a cruel master. Can we say amen to that? It is. It's a cruel master. The world might say, you belong in the gutter. But because of the cross, because of the Father's love for you, he will take you just as you are in your mess, in your sexual sin, in your crushing shame, in the guilt that racks you. And he does not say to you, sexual sinner, first clean yourself up before stepping in my house. No. He says, welcome. Come in. I will clean you up. Come in dirty. Come in with those filthy clothes. I'll take them off. I will clean you up. And then I will give you new desires, and I will give you power to put that old enslaving life 
in the rear view mirror. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is here. Father, thank you that your Holy Spirit can help us right now in this this moment, not a year from now, not two years from now, but in this moment, you can bring to us the grace, the gift that we need. Be it repentance, be it healing, be it comfort, be it a faith to believe that you forgive us, be it a faith to receive your love, be it faith to come into that house with filthy clothes and let you make us clean and new and pure again to become a new man, a new woman. Father, through your Holy Spirit, for my friends here, I pray, bring whatever grace and gift is needed. In this part of our lives, we need you desperately, Father. We entrust now what's been given to us. Father, we have a stewardship now of what we've heard. Give us the power to obey. Give us the power to respond. Give us the power to accept your wisdom when it doesn't make sense. Father, help us to reject our overly sexualized culture. Help us become resensitized to the objectification of men and women. Help us be holy in what we see, in what we expose ourselves to. Help us be holy. To be like you, Father. Father, you're pure. Father, you're holy. And you say to us, sons and daughters, be like me. Be like me. Be pure. See people as I see them, not as sexual objects for my pleasure. See as I see. The value, the intrinsic worth, as Vadi said, every man and woman and boy and girl created in the image of God with inherent worth and dignity. Father, we acknowledge that if the church doesn't speak this truth, nobody else will. Help us to speak up for the inherent worth and beauty and dignity of every human being. Help us to speak, Father. And help us to live as you desire us to live. Think as you desire us to think. Feel as you desire us to feel. It's in Christ's name that we pray and say amen with me. Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and stand. 
Go ahead and stand as we close this morning. Thank you for listening to this challenging but also relevant subject and needed subject. Um, I'm going to stay here after we're done. I'll be just off to the side. If you would like prayer for yourself or for a friend, for something inward, for your marriage, I'll be here. I invite any pastors who are able to come down as well and be able to pray with others. Um, next week, we're going to introduce you to some more resources. We'll have some friends joining us who have quite a compelling story uh, related to this area, uh, counselors, uh, marriage coaches, so they as well will be a resource for you and for our church if you need to go further and deeper into this, into this area. You raise your hands for a final blessing. May our love, Father, abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight that we may be able to discern what is best so that we may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. 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 Go in peace.